Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. We all want different things out of work. Some people enter a career that they stay in for the rest of their lives. Others chop and change. Some people carry their work with them 24-7. Others want work to be work and then leave it at the door. Some people strive for something in between, trying to balance work and other aspects of their lives. But at a basic level, all people want to feel safe and valued at work, to be treated fairly. In Australia, many of the things that workers take for granted, annual leave, a decent wage, workplace health and safety, were actually hard fought and trade unions have been a key part of this story. But Australia has a long way to go to ensure that we're all safe and valued at work, And all the while we're seeing some of these existing protections that were were achieved previously undermined as the structure of the workforce and our policy settings change. The history of trade unions in Australia dates back to the early 19th century, but workers and unions themselves face major contemporary challenges, both as a result of the pandemic and beyond it. So today on the pod, as part of our work series, we want to talk about the role of trade unions beyond the pandemic and what we can all do to ensure that people at work are safe, properly paid and treated with dignity and respect. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. This podcast is Policy Forum Pod and it is, of course, produced by the policyforum.net as part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. We've got a great range of short courses and graduate programs, and you can check that out on our website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So with me in the studio today is my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi, Anna Greta. It's good to talk to you. We are in the virtual studio together today, so we're hoping that we don't get any glitches in our audio. Um, But like much of Australia, we're both in lockdown at the moment. For those of our listeners who don't know me, I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School and, of course, Anna Greta's regular co-host. And Greta, we've been having a great time on this series so far. We've had some amazing conversations with some pretty incredible people. Last week, we spoke with Guy Standing. What were your big takeaways from from Guy's pod, but but also from the other um, podcasts that we've done in this mini-series on work? Look, I think work is such an essential nature of what we all do. We're all we're worried at the moment about how and where we're working in the in the context of the pandemic. 
But what I've found from the series of conversations we've had so far is that we can challenge quite a lot of the core assumptions around work. Let's ask some creative questions about why, where and how we work and how can we can all enjoy a better quality of work with good quality respect um, and engagement. And so, I've, I've, look, I think this series is just, it's been great so far. Very much looking forward to today. Yeah, me too. And and I agree with you. It's it's that kind of really imaginative thinking and the optimism about the way in which we can make positive change that I think has been so exciting about this series. And of course, we've been discussing many global issues, issues that are, that are impacting on the world and people around the world. Today, we're moving just a little bit closer to home and we have an excellent guest with us to do just that. We are delighted today to be talking with Michelle O'Neill. Michelle, as most people will know, is the President of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, the ACTU. Michelle has, has a long history um, of activism, but of working across a range of sectors herself. In her teens, she worked in, in restaurants, bars and clubs and became very active in a range of social justice campaigns. Before being elected as ACTU president in 2018, Michelle represented workers in the textile, clothing and footwear industry as an organiser and then as branch and national secretary of the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia. She's represented unions nationally and internationally and connecting with the conversations that we had a couple of weeks ago with Shara Razavi from the International Labour Organisation, Michelle has led campaigns globally to promote the rights of workers in the textile industry, particularly through clothing supply chains. Following the amalgamation of the TCFUA and the CFMEU, uh, Michelle was CFMEU Vice President. Uh, Michelle, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, hi, Sharon and Anna Greta. It's absolutely fantastic to be with you as well. Thanks for having me on. So, Michelle, we, we want to talk about contemporary issues and we will do that in just a moment. But before we start that conversation, I just wanted to look back to the, the some of the origins of the union movement in Australia. And I wonder if you could set the context by just telling us a little bit about the early days of unionism in this country, where it came from, the sorts of challenges that the union movement was seeking to address when it first started in Australia? Uh, Sharon, I can, and, and it's appropriate that I start by also acknowledging the traditional owners of the land I'm on today, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I want to pay all my respects to the elders past and present, and it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. And, of course, that means I'm also in lockdown in Melbourne as we speak. And when we think about the origins of the trade union movement in Australia, it does go back as far as early colonisation and the very first white people that came to this country. But, of course, the first thing that happens and I think is part of the origins of resistance and struggle in Australia's history is the uh, resistance of the Indigenous owners of the land when it was first invaded. So I want to recognise that. I'll come back to this because 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have played such an important part in the history of Australian unions as well. So as early as 1791, there's evidence of convicts taking strike action to demand that their rations be distributed weekly. And then there's um, records of strikes that were taken by um, all sorts of workers uh, in Australia at the time. In um, 1829, the topographers for the Australian newspaper went on strike and you had strikes from bakers and shoemakers and carpenters and seamen and whalers all over that time. And the very first bit of legislation that was put in to try and control this was the Masters and Servants Act, which was put in place in New South Wales in 1828. So early on, you saw state trying to um, do something about these upstart workers that were trying to organise and get themselves some better rights and conditions. And then over the times of uh, at the 30s and 50, 1830s and 50s, you saw organisations come together, originally called societies that were looking after each other's welfare, workers coming together to look after each other's welfare. But then they became really more organised um, and organised around particular industries and sectors and also in response to events that were going on. Uh, And you've got to uh, remember, of course, this was a migrant country now in terms of the arrival of people. So you had a lot of convicts and migrants arriving that had been uh, part of the British labour movement uh, or part of the Irish independence struggle. So that was influencing what was going on as well. And then you had the Eureka Stockade. So you can see these early periods of time from the 1780s to through to the middle of the 1850s, uh, workers getting organised and, of course, famously um, stone masons striking to win an eight-hour day here in Melbourne in 1856, which was the first win of its kind in the world. And the uh, one that I want to take us back to because it's part of my own union story is uh, the strike that was a strike of women workers in 1882. And that was the women who were working at a clothing factory called the Beath Scheiss factory in Melbourne. And it was a terrible um, working environment. It was dirty and dusty and they were being paid by the peace and the boss was trying to reduce the peace rate. And they went on strike and were joined by hundreds of other workers at garment factories around Melbourne at the time. And that went on to form the very first women's union in Australia, which was the Tayloresses Association, which, of course, was one of the founding unions of the union um, that is my union, the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia. So I'm not going to go through the, the decades past that other than to say what happened beyond that was unions grew and they grew in a way that that meant they were able to organise to win some extraordinary rights for working people in this country, things like superannuation, paid leave for annual leave and long service leave and sick leave, parental leave, equal pay, uh, many improvements in terms of health and safety. And, of course, uh, we continue a lot of these struggles today. And as you rightly said, Anna Greta, um, many of them have been under substantial challenge. Um, and the fight today is not just about winning new rights and conditions for workers but in fact also defending many of those conditions that were won by the people that came before us. 
Michelle, it's it's fantastic to hear you map out in in such detail and with such passion that history of the union movement in Australia, um, because I I think we we sometimes forget the importance of that history, and just how significant the union movement has been in shifting the conditions of work and making not just work, but life so much better for so many working people. And of course, some of the advances that we saw in Australia were world-leading advances. The Australian union movement has been at the forefront um, of a lot of the workers' rights that we've seen unfold around the world. But I wanted to ask you, Michelle, as we kind of move to the present, and and we think about the way in which the world of work has changed since those early days. Has the, the purpose and the focus of trade unions in Australia changed greatly as we've seen the, the global economy emerge, you know, the, the emergence of globalisation um, and some fairly significant shifts in the nature of work? What has that meant for the, the union movement here in Australia? Well, the union movement has changed dramatically over its life here in Australia. And I suppose the first thing I would say is that uh, now in Australia today, the majority of union members are women. And, uh, and in fact, the largest union in the country is the Australian Nurses and Midwives Federation. And so the what's often... Um, talked about and seen as our in our history as the organizing of workers that included women as my story had said but uh, it, it was often the case that the majority of union members were men and women were not well represented in our leadership uh, and decision making structures that's not the case today we've still got room to improve of course but um, I think that we've come a significant way in changing both who it is that is part of unions, but also um, uh, the voice of working people is a different voice today than it was in the past. The other things that, um, of course, is that we're facing a different world of work than the one I was describing before. And the world of work has changed so dramatically. And it's, it's changed not just because of the participation of women, but because of uh, globalization and because of the approach of many employers to really adopt a way of organizing work where there's a fairly relentless attempt to try and distance the employer for a responsibility from the wages and conditions and rights of the people who do the work. And we see this in long and complex supply chains, but we also see it through outsourcing and the rise of different types of work. So one that's got a lot more attention in the last few years is the gig economy and the most notable being the uh, the work that's been happening here in Australia and around the world to try and organise and represent workers that do ride sharing and delivering of our foods on bikes or uh, or put on either push bikes or motorbikes and those workers who are treated by um, the Ubers of the world and the deliverers of the world as if they are not workers. And this is not just true of that industry, but common in many. This idea that somehow, uh, rather than being a worker, you're a contractor. And it's often a sham. It's a way of distancing responsibility and driving down paying conditions and rights. Uh, But it's having a dramatic impact on workers and their pay and conditions, but also their capacity to organise. 
The other thing I'd say is that we've seen this massive increase in insecure work. So uh, where we used to have the majority of jobs were permanent jobs that had regular hours and pay and where the workers working in them had a predictable um, sense of when they were going to work, how much they were going to be paid and what that meant for planning and organising their life. Now Australia has the third highest rate of insecure work in the OECD. And that's a mixture of casual jobs, contract jobs, uh, labour hire work and gig economy work. And what characterises that is that often workers have uh, completely unpredictable hours and consequently pay. Uh, They don't know when they're going to work. They don't know how often they're going to work. They don't know how much they're going to be paid. And the other characteristic that's come really to the fore during COVID-19 is the lack of paid leave. So no entitlement for sick leave or annual leave, long service leave or things like parental leave. And when we ended up in a pandemic, that had a dramatic impact here in Australia, where overnight thousands of workers lost their jobs. We saw those queues outside Centrelink. And, of course, then when we were dealing with the the pandemic itself, workers without any access to paid leave having to continue to go to work even when they weren't well, not able to have time off to be able to get tested and isolate because they literally would immediately lose their income and in many cases their job. And this uh, had a terrible impact on those workers and their families but also led to some terrible outbreaks of COVID-19 in um, sectors that were reliant on these insecure workers. Michelle, you've done an amazing job, as expected, uh, of of mapping out the way in which work has changed, particularly in the last few decades, that separation between boss and employee, the rise of the gig economy and insecure work. I wonder how it's changed the role for unions and particularly how the shifting circumstances of work have affected the way that unions can engage with working people, whether the structure of the workforce now makes it easier, harder or, or just simply different. Well, I think it's harder and it's been deliberately made harder by bosses. I think that a lot of what I was just describing about the changing nature of jobs and work and how it's organised has been a planned strategy to uh, diminish the capacity of working people to organise effectively together. And you combine that now with... uh, you know, eight years of a very conservative government that have a fairly explicit agenda of diminishing the rights of workers and of unions, and you've got a pretty terrible combination. What I'd say about that, though, is that it doesn't stop unions organising. It puts a lot of barriers in the way and requires creative and new approaches to it, but it is something that I think um, has, uh, has changed the basis of how we organise and talk to workers. The other thing that's changed, of course, dramatically more recently is the pandemic. And uh, I've seen a a remarkable switch from unions being able and used to organising nearly completely in a sort of face-to-face environment to transforming that uh, to a lot of virtual organising, which is reaching new workers, so not just reaching the worker, in fact, reaching a different group of workers as well as workers that we spoke to before. So I, I think we've we've also seen the impact of uh, a, a union movement dealing with 
um, our rights to bargain and win for workers being hampered by the legislative changes. So we have a, a diminishing number of workers in Australia now covered by enterprise agreements. And part of what's wrong with our system is that our capacity to be able to win changes in sectors or organise um, industry-wide improvements in, in paying conditions is not supported by our legislation. And, uh, and also we have severely limited rights to take industrial action and strike. So the things that uh, we know work in terms of um, putting a balance back in the system, workers coming together and, and uh, being able to have a powerful voice uh, to demand change is really diminished under Australian law and we've seen the impact of that. And so you make a compelling case that the role of unions now is as important as it has been at any point in our history. How about engagement from workers? Are we seeing that change, I guess, particularly with the pandemic? Are we seeing a rise in, in union membership or enthusiasm for collective work uh, or collective organising to achieve better working conditions? Well, I, I think it's there's two sides to this, Anagreta, of course, we ha have to be honest about the the density of unions in Australia is still under massive challenge. We have about 15% of the workforce who are currently organised in unions. And that is because of all the reasons I was describing before. But there has been also been, in response to that, some really interesting and dramatically different ways of reaching workers and organising workers and them acting collectively to win change. And I think we will see even more of that. Um, in some ways, there's nothing good about a pandemic, but rapid nature of change that it's forced um, unions to make in terms of how we bring about um, ways of collective power for workers is, is a really interesting thing. And I, and I also think that those workers, you know, I'm talking to you on a day where tomorrow there's going to be a strike by transport workers who have, if you think about transport workers in Australia, they've worked incredibly hard during the pandemic. They've literally carried us through in all sorts of ways, kept food and our basic goods arriving in the shops so that we could survive or arriving at our door so that we could survive. Um, and, uh, and the companies they work for have made pretty massive profits during this pandemic as a result. And these workers have often taken considerable risks in terms of their own health. Um, you know, well before we had vaccines, they were continuing to work. They were continuing to, you know, be in very high-risk situations. But now they're forced to take strike action um, to try and, and win better paying conditions. But in fact, the core of that strike action is about the outsourcing of work by large transport companies who are wanting to employ workers via contract arrangements on lower sets of pay and conditions. And so here these workers tomorrow um, are going to be taking strike action as part of a, a broad campaign against that uh, increase in insecurity 
secure work and trying to win secure quality jobs with dignity in that industry. So there's there's traditional um, things happening like strike action that uh, that you would maybe be surprised to see in a pandemic. But then you also see some massive online organising where workers are um, using the power of social media and and brand pressure as well on companies to force them to take account to the, for the rights of the workers that do the work for them. Michelle, we've we've seen in in media coverage quite a bit of discussion of the way in which JobKeeper was used um, last year. Um, there have been questions also raised in, in Parliament about I think it's something like the one point three billion dollars of, of JobKeeper. Um, that was used and questions about how that money was was used by various companies. At the same time as we have those those questions and those concerns about uh, JobKeeper going to companies that then posted very, very um, significant profits, we have these concerns that you're talking about around increased casualisation and outsourcing of work. Do you think that we may, through these these discussions, see something of a turning point where there is a greater demand across the population um, for more equity in the way workers, particularly low-paid paid workers, are treated? Well, I, I think, Sharon, that the just to start with the JobKeeper story, I mean, that this was something that was won by unions in Australia. If you remember back to March of 2020, the government, the Prime Minister, completely ruled out any sort of wage subsidy. And it was workers organising and uh, us looking around the world and seeing what was happening and and thinking through what was critical in terms of what was going to get us through this uh, and a campaign to bring broad, broad support behind a wage subsidy program that eventually won JobKeeper. And JobKeeper we didn't design it. It had it had serious flaws, not least of which leaving out casual workers and visa workers and many workers in higher education, for example. But it did save literally millions of jobs in this country. And one of its critical design elements was that it kept workers connected to the job. Uh, another flaw in it, though, of course, was that there was not enough rigour about looking at the companies and whether they ultimately ended up um, profiteering out of the pandemic, and those that, uh, of course, um, have gone, we've have gone on to be exposed for making pretty massive profits at the same time as pocketing that JobKeeper money. I mean, the money went to those workers, but my view is there should have been a more rigorous standard in terms of only those companies that really needed it should have got it. So I think it, it's a really it's a really, really important story in keeping workers connected to their jobs and what unions can do and win in a crisis situation um, with determination. But your point about how what how people view work and the security of work and what needs to happen in the future is I think a good one. I think there is a real different sense now in the broader community about a demand for more secure jobs. And I think prior to the pandemic, there was a sense of inevitability about maybe jobs becoming more casual or insecure. I think now we see a change in attitude. We see people thinking, well, hold on a minute, this leaves us vulnerable in so many ways, not just our health. And why can't it be that we can win back 
uh, uh, different and win in the future more secure jobs because that has so many positives, not just for the individuals but for our society and our economy. Like the impact on family and community life of unpredictable hours and pay is massive. And and if we want to have a society that's more equal and fair, if we want to have a society where people can engage um, in community and in what in public good, then we need to make sure that we have a working life that can deliver that and security um, and an approach to that where we have more secure jobs we think is critical to fighting inequality and making sure that we've got a fairer system. And I do think public attitudes have changed. Michelle, I think that's the the perfect place for us to take a very short break um, and we will come back and talk a little bit more about how we can achieve that kind of just and equitable society you're referring to. So listeners, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists, and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We are here talking with Michelle O'Neill, President of the ACTU. Um, And before the break, we were talking about how we can make Australia a a more just and equitable society, how we can address some of the challenges that we face. And we're going to continue that conversation now. But I did want to ask Michelle about what you were seeing um, and what unions across Australia are seeing in terms of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on women in particular in Australia and around the world. We've seen this as a, as a rather gendered pandemic where women have been hit particularly hard in terms of um, their, their, their work, in terms of losing work, in terms of, of um, security and earnings. And of course, this is in a context in Australia where we, we already have a very significant gender wage gap. What conversations have you had within your organisation and with your members about the impact that we're seeing on women in the workplace um, through through this well, pandemic? Well, this pandemic has had a dramatic impact on women, and it is a very gendered pandemic. It, uh, you know, the notion that it's treated us all the same or that we're all in it together has never been true, and it's particularly not true when you look at the experience of working women. So. Early on, you saw that dramatic impact of job losses. And, of course, because women make up the majority of workers that are in insecure work, it hit them the hardest, Uh, not just job losses but also hours lost. And that uh, the other thing that 
means that women were more impact in that way was also because they're more in those sectors and industries that were really hard hit. So the majority of workers in hospitality are women. Women bore the brunt of uh, also working in sectors that had both a massive impact on on their job and hours, but also their safety. So the vast majority of workers in early childhood education and care are women. The vast majority of workers in aged care are women, both of which were hit so hard in different ways by the pandemic. And in the case of early childhood education and care, those workers were, you know, for some bizarre reason, we had this moment where, where the government conceded and and introduced free childcare in Australia, a tantalising moment before it was ripped away again, and then not only ripping away free childcare in the middle of the pandemic, but then choosing early childhood educators to be the first group of workers to be taken off JobKeeper as well. So uh, there's there's so many examples of of an unequal um, system and how it impacted on workers. The other thing I'd say is that what we know about one of the impacts of working from home, which uh, some workers were able to do, is that we also have seen uh, an increase in family and domestic violence over the period of time of the pandemic. And we think this is also linked to uh, the people being in the, together at home more and so at plus also the capacity for control and violence to be escalated um, because of all of the restrictions around the pandemic and things like lockdown. So shockingly high um, reports to frontline services of not just increases in the number of people reporting family and domestic violence but also in the severity of the violence and in that combination of control mechanisms of both violence and also financial and other means of control and the difficulties for people to leave and escape, for women to escape um, in the midst of a pandemic. The other things we, we know have impacted on women is that women already earn less. Um, we already have a pay gap, but uh, a gender pay gap. But we saw with the new figures that came out last week is that for the first time in a long time, it got worse. It went up 0.8% to 14.2% now. And that's, uh, of course, the full-time equivalent. It's even worse if you factor in the hour the hours that are difference for women. And the uh, to have a gender pay cap that's worsening over this time sort of tells you a lot about the impact of the pandemic on women. The last thing I'd say that has also been critical and will have a long-term negative impact for women workers is what happened with superannuation. Like we already know that women retire today with half the amount of superannuation that men do uh, because of the fact that they're lower paid, because they have breaks because of caring in their um, working life. And yet we had the government open up a disgraceful 
uh, approach to the pandemic where people were forced to fund their own survival by raiding the superannuation funds and many women completely emptied the superannuation funds. So the impact of that is going to be felt for decades because, of course, what it will mean is that those women will retire with much less and we already see poverty amongst older women and homelessness amongst older women is one of the fastest rising groups of homeless people. So all of these factors come together to show you that this was a very gendered pandemic and it has actually cemented worse inequality in our system. You've just mapped the challenges in equity um, around the the issue of gender, particularly through in work in Australia, um, in in a very stark way. Uh, there are challenges that are tremendously important to see our policymakers respond to. On this series, uh, our conversation on work, we've been dreaming big uh, in terms of the future and how we might see things improve. What sort of changes would you like to see made in Australia to improve the rights of women at work and I guess particularly looking at those range of challenges that you've just identified? Oh, and Greta, how long have we gone? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so, look, I, I, I think that firstly it's about, you know, what, what it is that we dream for, what it is that we are, are trying to win. And I suppose I think that having a a pandemic does force you to look at a whole lot of things differently. And what's critical is that we don't turn back the clock. We actually don't want to come out the other end the same as we went in. And so there, having a clear eye on the need to build a fairer, more equal and just world of work is, I think, a really important objective. The other things I'd say is there's a lot of practical things. Let's start with women as an example and the, the point I made before about universal childcare. I mean, that in itself would make such a dramatic difference in terms of if we had free universal childcare in Australia, being able to um, increase the participation of women at work, being able to ensure that they were able to have opportunities in terms of their career and their training and their uh, navigation of work differently because they were able to access free childcare um, would make a dramatic difference. It would also be really good for the economy, by the way, because it would more than pay for itself. I mean, we, uh, the, if, if the number, if the women working in Australia between 25 and 45 participated at the same rate as men, you'd actually see $70 billion more in GDP in Australia than you currently do have see. So it actually makes no sense not to deliver free universal childcare for all sorts of reasons. The other things that um, I think are important in thinking about what we need to win differently is this issue about secure jobs and uh, really challenging that notion that, the, the design of jobs and the, the quality of them is something that can be controlled and diminished by employers. Uh, I think that the basic right of workers to have reliable work, secure work, I'm not against and not suggesting there's no role for casual jobs, but 
the reality when you talk to people is that there's actually a small percentage of people who want genuinely casual employment. The vast bulk of workers may want part-time or may want full-time, but they need it to be predictable, to be regular, to know how much they're going to earn and be able to plan and organise their life around that. The other thing I'd say is important is about the re-evaluation of what's important and and of particularly of jobs that have been traditionally done by women but are vastly underpaid and undervalued and under-recognised. And aged care just hits me in the face every time I think about this. And maybe it's from having gone through a personal experience of having both my parents die in an, in an aged care facility in the last few years. But they seeing the work that is done by those workers in aged care, that extraordinary combination of skill and care, not just for the residents in those facilities, but also for the families of people coming in and out of them. And then to look at that disgraceful level of pay, the insecurity of those jobs, the lack of recognition, I think says it all about how we value care in Australia and and the people who do the jobs of caring. So I think we need to, that's both an issue to do with pay equity because of the link with women, but it's also an issue to do with what's valued. And it shouldn't just be that we value what you make um, or, or what you say, we should also be able to properly value what it is that we do to look out for each other and build a, a community with more care at its centre. Michelle, uh, Sharon and I have a hashtag value caring. Uh, we find it comes up a lot in the conversations that we have and particularly about very different ways of doing policy in Australia, that if we take it through the prism of caring for each other, caring for ourselves, caring for the environment, uh, some of the solutions are really quite extraordinary. Anna Greta, can I, can I just add on that? I, I didn't know you had that hashtag, but it's a very good one. Um, and, of course, that, <laughs> that is one of the other things that we haven't mentioned today, but that's critical to the future of work, which is this issue to do with the environment and climate change. Uh, too often when this is talked about, it's talked about from a really narrow perspective as if, it's only an issue in terms of the impact for workers on workers in the fossil fuel industry. And, of course, there is a lot of issues to do with the workers in that sector and how they should be at the centre of planning for change. But mm. there is not one job, there is not one sector in Australia that is not being impacted by climate change. It impacts every day on the jobs done, for example, by nurses, um, uh, by people that Absolutely. are dealing with national uh, disasters like the fires and floods um it is it impacts on those people that work outside and whose job it is to be outside and what that means when you're in extreme temperatures it it, it literally impacts on us all and so i think that uh, plan for the future about how we get to net zero emissions, what are the sort of jobs that are going to be created, how we move to renewable energy and how we make sure that renewable energy jobs are good quality union jobs um, is critical to our plans for the future. Uh, couldn't agree more, absolutely. Uh, tremendously important to value the planet that we live on. There is only one Michelle, as we're, we're thinking about those really critical issues of, of climate change and how we, how we address this climate emergency, what role do you see for the union movement in addressing those challenges and perhaps in leading the nature of some of the debates? 
I think that uh, the role we have is is multi uh, multifaceted. Really, it, it's a role. Firstly, I think about being the voice of working people in this debate, which is often missing. Um, I think we all know how binary and um, and hard this debate has been in Australia, uh, but. What I know when I talk to workers and unions about this is that if you take, for example, workers that currently work in the fossil fuel industry, they have a really highly sophisticated understanding about what's happening in their industry and what's happening in the world. Um, but understandably, they also are proud of having been part of unions and work that have changed those jobs for the better that were terrible jobs like jobs that were killing workers at at alarming rates that were some of the most unsafe and harshest jobs you could ever do that it was the result of workers and unions that coming together that actually ensured that they became safer well-paid jobs and There's not a resistance to change, but there is an absolute resistance to not being part of planning that change and ensuring that that change delivers for their families and communities into the future. So I I think transition in a way that has workers at the centre is really critical. The other thing is that, of course, we've got a role to play in, in being part of looking at what Australia can do differently. So uh, when we think about, for example, our manufacturing sector that has been uh, hard hit in so many ways over the last 40, 50 years, but the opportunities in terms of what we can make here in Australia and how we can ensure that we actually have a sustainable manufacturing industry that means that we are uh, making products that are part of the future in terms of renewable energy. <laughs> so our you know, role in lithium battery production, in um, renewable hydrogen production, green metal manufacturing, electric vehicle manufacturing, um, and renewable energy machinery, etc., are all really critical Um, that we could be building an industry here using the natural resources um, that we have in Australia and um, ensuring that we're part of that global, not just making for here but making for the export markets as well. The other thing I'd say about our role in terms of uh, climate change and and workers is about safety. Unions have always, this has always been an issue at the forefront of the work of organising workers around how do you make sure workers are safe. And the changes that are inevitable, even if we do the very best outcomes in terms of climate change, um, are going to have a dramatic impact on workers and their safety. So making sure that we climate-proof workplaces, that we have in place systems that ensure workers are safe and aren't put under extreme pressure um, and bearing the brunt of our changing climate is critical too. Michelle, there are so many fundamentally important issues there that um, I think both Anna Greta and I would love to invite you back at some point to to unpack some of these issues a little bit more and to think a bit more deeply about um, the role of of the union movement um, in facing the the climate emergency, but also how we bring those workers into those conversations. For now, unfortunately, we're going to have to draw this remarkable conversation to a close. And 
We like to finish these conversations by asking for a piece of concrete policy advice. But today, I'd I'd like to be a bit cheeky and ask you for two pieces of advice. So as we wrap up, could I ask you, what is your number one piece of policy advice for the government in terms of supporting people through this current crisis that we are all struggling with? And the second piece of advice is to go back to that that imagining a better future and to ask you what is the the long-term idea that you would like to see put into practice to support workers after the crisis and into the future as we strive to change the world of work for the better? Well, I'm glad you asked the easy questions, Shalane. Piece of cake, really. um, Look, I... Because unionists are practical people, you know, and and what I what I would start with is that is I'm so conscious as we speak of what's happening in Sydney and in other communities that are locked down. You know the shocking um, figures we've seen about the low rate of vaccination in Indigenous communities, where there's now outbreaks of COVID as well in Western New South Wales and. And what we know is the class and race impact of the lockdowns, for example, in Western Sydney and how it's impacting on culturally and linguistically diverse communities. And um, and I suppose I would then say that front of mind at the moment for me is paid uh, vaccination leave. So if we are going to get people vaccinated, we have to make sure it's fair and accessible. And if we don't deal with making vaccines available, it's a supply issue to start with, but then doing whatever we can to ensure that people can genuinely access that without it having a negative impact on them losing their job or their income, then we have to do it. So that access to vaccines and paid vaccination leave so that workers can get vaccinated and that we don't leave anyone behind as we move to higher rates of vaccination, um, I think is critical. That's my number one. And my number two about imagining a better future, that's so hard to pick one thing, <laughs> Sharon and I'm good, it's so hard. Um, I, look, when I think about that, I think about that if we had um, uh, really, I think workers, I think change comes when people organise. I think power comes from people acting collectively. So if there was going to be one change that I think would then drive a million other changes, it would be the changes in the rights of workers to be able to organise effectively. And that would be about making sure that we had uh, rights to more permanent jobs because I think secure jobs gives you a better chance to organise and a better chance to win rights and paying conditions. That's there's a number of I'm cheating because there's a number of sub policies in that around <laughs> secure jobs, which is about the rights to convert from casual to permanent and and having limits on the number of ongoing contracts and having gig workers that is the same right and treated as a worker as any other worker and having labour hire workers not be able to be paid less paying conditions than the permanent workers they work alongside. So I've cheated, but I'm going to say secure jobs is a critical future demand. Michelle, I think that is such a a fundamentally important 
important recommendation. It's one that aligns very well with the kinds of things that our guest last week, Guy Standing, was saying about the need to to make work and life less precarious and far more secure for people. So uh, I think it's um, it's it's a good piece of imagining that you've left us with. Thank you so much for joining us today. I've absolutely loved this conversation. There is so much to take away from it. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much, Michelle. That was great. Yeah, thank you, Sharon and Anna Greta. I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, we're happy to come back and talk to you two anytime. You ask great questions. <laughs> we'll hold you awesome. to that. <laughs> we're going to hold you to that. Yeah. <laughs> Sharon, that conversation with Michelle O'Neill was absolutely amazing. And I, I think puts into context the conversations that we've had over the last few weeks with the other amazing thinkers who are considering both the history and the future of work. Uh, what did she describe herself as? A, a, a pragmatic so- problem solver and the union people are practical, but it, it's actually a practicality which has the capacity to dream big. Uh, and I think she understands the ideas around value caring much more than we, we've fleshed out previously. She gave real depth to that whole perspective. So it was just extraordinary for me bringing some of the big ideas of work that we've addressed over the last few weeks right down to the practicalities of working lives for all of us right now in Australia. How about you? Yeah, I I agree. I think that conversation just drew together so many of the threads that we've been talking about in such an incredibly practical way. And Michelle, like everyone else, brought some of that optimism for the future. You know, at times at the moment, I think we can all feel just a bit despairing. But hearing her talk and hearing, you know, our other speakers across this mini series, you know, I have a real sense of optimism. There are so many solutions to the problems that we have. And that's a positive thing. Yep, absolutely. And she, she reminded us of how important it is at this particular moment in time to not let go of that opportunity to achieve change, to, to look at the problems that we've faced both now and previously, and to take the opportunity of the extraordinary challenge of the global pandemic to think differently about what the future might look like. Uh, the other thing, Anna Greta, that I really love is the way that our hashtag value caring really connects with so many people. I think this is such a fundamentally important issue to, to really think about how we put it at the centre. So imagine if all of our policies were seen through the prism of valuing either the, our friends and family and our community, ourselves and our mental health and wellbeing or the planet on which we sit. Wouldn't it be quite an amazing model moving forward? It really, forward? really would. Sharon, I think we could probably keep talking about work for the rest of the year, but we are going to bring this work series to a close. And, and I think next week is our last week uh, on the work series. What are we going? How are we going to finish well, this? Well, I think the, the the only way that we can finish this is a little more imagining and a little more blue sky thinking, as well as some reflection on what we've discussed over the past several weeks. So, I say we bring together another one of our extraordinary panels to help you and I talk through what we've learned, what we take away from this and where we go. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds like a great way for us to to bring together the threads. Um, What a great idea. Let's pull together some of our favourite thinkers and see what they make of the, the future of work. So to those of you who are listening to this episode and have followed this whole series, do join us again for the last of this series where we do some of that reflection and we do some of that forward thinking and and imagining a better, a more just 
and a more sustainable world. But thank you so much for joining us today. Do reach out to us. We really want to hear what you've thought about this series, and we really want to hear how you are imagining a better future. So you can contact us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or via email on podcast at policyforum.net. You can also join our Facebook group, and that's probably the best way to get in touch with us. If you just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, you will find us. And please do join in those conversations. We would love you to subscribe to our our Policy Forum pod and to leave a review. And you can do that on whatever platform you normally listen to your podcasts through. We read all of the reviews that we get and we take them very seriously. So do connect with us. As we said, we will be back next week with an important episode to help draw together some of these threads that we've been talking about. But for now, it's Bye-bye from me, Sharon Bessel. And bye-bye from Anagreta Hunter. I'll see you next week, Sharon. Looking forward to it. Me too. See you then. Bye-bye. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save